Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were on a tour at Tel Dan, which is basically the northern border of the state of Israel. Go any farther, and you'll have to climb Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel, and then you'll be in Lebanon. Fun fact, I was just conversing with a local about Mount Hermon, which we could see in the distance when we were at Abraham's Gate. And the local told me that there is a ski resort on top of Mount Hermon. Because it's so high, there is snow during the winter months. That's just insane to me. Israel is a country in the desert. And in just a few hours, you can go from baking in the sun in the Negev in the south to skiing in actual snow in the north. Before we head over to see one of the coolest things that tell Dan, the only extra-biblical evidence for King David from the Bible, let's recap what we learned last time. Before we got off the bus here at Tel Dan, we learned about the origin of the name. Dan was one of the tribes of Israel. When the land of Canaan was split between the tribes of Israel following the conquest of the Canaanites, Dan got a pretty small section of the land. And it got even smaller after the Philistines took land from them. So we learn that the people of Dan fought the Canaanites for the land upon which we're now standing. This city, Tel Dan today, was originally called Leshem, but it was renamed to Leshem Dan, and now it is Tel Dan. That leads me to something else about the name I didn't cover last time, the concept of a tell. We've talked about a tell uh, before on our tours, but because we're going to be visiting a number of tells very soon, I thought it might be worth taking a moment to explain. See, I've always described a tell to you along the lines of conquerors destroying a city and then building on top of the ruins, and that process would continue, and layers would accumulate. The tell would get higher and higher as the conqueror-to-being-conquered process took place over many years. Now, some tells, like Tel Megiddo, which is a place we're headed to soon, are in a relatively flat area. But because Megiddo has 20-something layers of cities in its tell, it sticks up out of the ground and looks like a mini-mountain. This is really useful for archaeologists who want to date each layer of a tell. They can easily cut into a side of the cake, essentially, and find dating material, such as bones and pottery. For an expert, that's all they need to say what time period a certain layer is from. But recently I got some clarification on the nature of how tells form from Dr. Jody Magnus. You may remember Dr. Magnus, a renowned archaeologist, from our tour at Qumran, where we got to see the caves the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. Well, Dr. Bagnus explained that tells are not just artificial mounds created from one layer building on top of the other. That's true, but it's also a little more technical than that. When people wanted to settle in a place, they would dig a dry moat or a ditch going around the new city, and they would take the dirt from the ditch and pile it up around the city. They'd also plaster the dirt so it wouldn't disintegrate. So essentially, they just created a rampart and a moat. That's genius. Think about how much harder it would be to get chariots 
or battering rams into the city. Even if you could get up and over the rampart, you would fall into the ditch on the other side. Plus, the people would build a city wall at the top of the rampart, so they had the high ground in the event of attackers. But sometimes, skilled enemies could still conquer the city. When they would do so, the city would crumble inside, and the material from the former city couldn't simply expand and flatten into the earth because the rampart and ditch would keep it contained. So whenever an enemy came to attack a city with this fortification system, they would just rebuild on the previous layer, and slowly the tail would grow higher and higher. Imagine making a cake with layers. You put the first layer of batter into a cake pan, and then you could dump the next layer of the batter right onto that. But the batter can't simply spread out all over your kitchen counter because the pan contains it. The pan is kind of like the dirt rampart in a tell. So dumping another layer on top of the first layer simply means that layer two is higher than the first, and then layer three is above layer two. They might get a little mixed up, just like the layers of a tell can get mixed up, but for the most part, you're going to be able to see in the finished cake where layer one ends and where layer two starts. Hopefully that gives you a better visual for how all the layers of a city could accumulate inside of the dirt rampart. Eventually you could end up with a super high mound, depending on how many peoples came to conquer and then rebuild on the previous city's ruins. They created their own layer. Interestingly, this fortification system is really only found in the ancient Near East, so here in Israel and the surrounding area. And it's also only really from the Bronze and Iron Ages, so that's around 3000 BC to 550 BC. So that was just an interesting point of clarification concerning tells for me, and I thought I'd share with you all. I know it's technical, but hopefully it provides you with a better understanding of how these cities developed. And like I said, it's important knowledge to have as we head into some upcoming tours at other tells. Last time here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we also had the chance to see a 4,000-year-old mud brick gate, Abraham's Gate. As we learned, Abraham would have gone through it when he was trying to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive by an enemy. And we left off here, right where we're standing, Jeroboam's so-called temple. We learned that the United Kingdom of Israel split following King Solomon's death, in part due to his sins. He clearly disobeyed the commands for kings laid out in the Torah, the books of, of the law, such as having many wives and taxing the people heavily. But to honor his promise to David and significantly to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David from the line of Judah, God did not completely tear the kingdom from David's line. We learn that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, got to rule the southern kingdom, Judah, with the capital city of Jerusalem, while the northern kingdom of Israel was ruled by another man not of David's lineage, Jeroboam. Now, God had specifically said that Jerusalem was where he had chosen for his name to dwell. The people needed to go there to offer sacrifices. But Jeroboam was not a fan of that. As we learned, he was afraid the people's loyalty would turn to Rehoboam and Judah because they were traveling there so often. They were traveling there to make sacrifices and to go worship at the temple. 
So Jeroboam takes things into his own hands. And whenever man disobeys the commands of God and does that, it usually ends badly. Jeroboam decides to build two alternate places of worship in Bethel and Dan for the people. Alternate temples to the one in Jerusalem, in a sense. And that's what we're looking at right now. That pile of stones in the squarish shape is the remains of Jeroboam's temple. But this week on the virtual voyage here on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, I want to head over to another spot at Teldan. I've been teasing it for quite a bit, so hopefully you're excited. We're going to check out the Teldan Steel. Like I've said, this is the only extra biblical evidence for King David from the Bible, and it caused quite a stir among archaeologists and scholars when it was found in 1993. Ah, here it is. Well, not quite. This is a replica of the stone slab from the 9th century BC. There's no way that the original could be left out in the open after they discovered it, so it's safe in the Israel Museum back in Jerusalem, a museum we visited earlier on in our tour here in the land of Israel. But the replica they have here is quite nice. You can see how the inscriptions were carved into the stone. Now, you probably can't read it, it's an Aramaic, but note the translation below that's been provided. Well, a lot of it is broken up. You'll notice that there are a ton of ellipses, and that's because scholars aren't completely sure of every word. But look down about halfway, two-thirds down right there. Let's read. I killed Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, and I killed Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. What is the steel referring to? The split kingdom of Israel. Remember, the north kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah of the house of David. Now, the author is an Aramean king who is proudly declaring his victory over both kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And although there are disagreements on which two kings the steel is referring to, like I said, it's hard to tell, and scholars have spilt much ink sharing their own conclusions. But this could very well be referring to Hazael of Syria, who defeated Jehoram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah, like the translation there says. Now, Hazael was quite an interesting character. Although we're here talking about King David, it's worth pausing to go back to 2 Kings and learn a little bit about Hazael. After all, without Hazael conquering Jehoram and Ahaziah, maybe we wouldn't have the Teldan steel, which is now key evidence for the existence of King David as described in the Bible. 2 Kings 8 says that Elisha went to Damascus, and the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, was sick. Ben-Hadad learns Elisha is in his city and tells Hazael to go meet Elisha and ask Elisha if he'll recover from the sickness. Elisha says this, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Huh, that's interesting. Elisha is essentially telling Hazael to lie to the king. And then later Elisha says that the Lord has shown him that Ben-Hadad will be king over Syria. And then Elisha starts weeping, which causes Hazael to inquire, as anyone would, why does my Lord weep? Elisha says, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with a sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. 
Haziel denies it. He doesn't see how he could do such a thing. But quickly, Haziel turns into someone you wouldn't want to hang around. He takes things into his own hands from here. He goes back to the king, tells him he'll recover, but the next day he suffocates the king. He takes a cloth dipped in water and puts it over the king's face until he dies. So he assassinates the king, and then Haziel becomes king. Then he defeats Jehoram and Ahaziah, as the steel says, at the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. Elisha was right about Haziel. He was certainly awful to Israel. He oppressed them for many years. Once he even tried to go attack Jerusalem. He was powerful and might have been successful if it had not been for Jehoash of Judah. He thinks quickly and takes all of the dedicated offerings and gold that were for the temple and sends them to Haziel as a bribe to keep him from entering Jerusalem. Thankfully, it worked, and Haziel doesn't attack Jerusalem. Now, it's sad to see that all of this could have been avoided. Note what 2 Kings 13 says. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. Because Israel was in disobedience to God, he had to punish them by giving them into the hands of an enemy. There are consequences for sin. So that's the background on the Teldan steel and the inscription. I wanted to share all that information with you because if we just read about Jehoram and Ahaziah being conquered but had no idea about who did it or why, it would make little sense. But back to King David here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. David lived in the 11th century BC, and this inscription was discovered in the 9th century BC. This helps prove that David was real. We know the truth of what the Bible says about David. Let's just pause and listen to a few of the verses as we stand here at this monumental site. First Samuel says that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, anointed David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Or this verse from First Chronicles. So David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made all nations fear him. And then another verse from 1 Chronicles chapter 18. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Those are some pretty powerful verses, and some secular scholars often discounted them, saying that David was just a myth. The writers of those verses simply had imagined the figure of David and then made up stories about him that somehow made it into the Bible. Or maybe they would say the writers based the character of David after a small chieftain, and then they created stories of epic proportions writing them down in the Bible. No one, these scholars said, could actually be that powerful and have left such an impact on Israel. But this steel is evidence that David wasn't just a myth or a small chieftain. Why? Well, there were just about 150 years from the time of David's death to when the inscription was written. And that just isn't enough time for a myth about the mighty King David to grow so large. Of course, there has continued to be skepticism surrounding the Teldan steel. One scholar argued that the Aramaic term for House of David uh, could actually be referring to Bethlehem, the city, uh, so not the ancestral dynasty of David. But those of us who believe the Bible as true and historical, 
we know that the Taldean steel is only confirmation for our faith. Remember what Jesus said in the book of John, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We do not need the evidence of the Taldean steel to believe in the historical King David as the Bible describes him. We know he was a man after God's own heart. We believe that he was a small shepherd boy who trusted in the Lord to use him to defeat Goliath, the giant enemy. And we know that he ruled Israel well, with the surrounding nations coming to fear him. But of course, the life of David was not perfect. And this should serve as a reminder to us. Although we may try to serve God, love him, and follow him, we fall short. We are human. And if a man after God's own heart failed, like David, we sure will too. But there is grace and there is mercy, even for our shortcomings. I hope that you'll reflect on that as we're here at the Tell Dan Steel. Let's head back to the bus. I think we've seen everything here at Tell Dan, and I really hope you enjoyed seeing that steel. It's significant as the only extra-biblical evidence for King David, but I also hope that our faith is strong enough that even if it did not exist, we would still trust what the Bible says. King David was a real figure, just as the Bible describes him. Let's hop back on the bus here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Our final quick stop of the day is going to be at Banyas, also known as Caesarea Philippi. Let's head on out. Okay, here we are. The first thing you're struck by upon entering is just all the water. This site contains one of the largest springs that feeds the Jordan River. There's a beautiful waterfall about 30 feet high that you can hike to, although we probably won't be heading to it today because the end of day is quickly approaching. But think about all this water. Like at Tel Dan, people were attracted to settle here because of the springs. Where there's water, especially in a land uh, in the desert like, like Israel is, uh, people will settle. Now at this site, the early Canaanites worshipped the god Baal. You've probably heard the name of that god mentioned often in the Old Testament. An occult who worshipped the god Pan also developed here at Banyas in the Hellenistic period. So the Hellenistic period, that's 323 BC following the death of Alexander the Great until about 31 BC when the Roman Empire emerged. So Pan in Greek mythology is the god of the wild and the companion of the nymphs. So you can see how this cult started. During the Hellenistic period, a lot of places were influenced by Greek culture, including this site, and they decided to adopt the worship of Pan. This cult made their temple to Pan at the base of the cliff that overlooks the spring, and it's right next to a cave. Keep that in mind for later. That's going to be important. And here, you can see the remains of the temple. The bases of just a few pillars remain and, and what looks like a little bit of a floor. Now look up. Do you see how people would have carved into the cliffs? The cult members would have put statues of deities into these little hewn-out areas. Now, we don't have a ton of time here, but I did want you to see this example of how Greek culture could spread as far as the land of Israel and have such an influence that an entire cult would develop a system of worship to a Greek god. We've previously discussed uh, just how powerful cultural influences can be, such as with Dr. Eric Myers and the zodiac imagery on the floor of the synagogue at Sepphoris. This is yet another example of how the dominant culture at the time can spread quite far. Now, you might wonder about the name Banyas. 
What if I told you that the name was actually Panius after Pan? That would make more sense considering Pan's influence here. Well, Banyas is Arabic for Panyas. There's no P sound in Arabic. But more significantly, the alternative name for Banyas is Caesarea Philippi. And that's a name you may recognize from the Bible. After Herod the Great died, his sons divided the kingdom among themselves and made new capitals throughout the land. Herod Philip II got a portion of the land that included Banyas and he renamed it after himself, Caesarea Philippi. There's another Caesarea in Israel, Caesarea Maritima, which we'll surely check out soon, but he had to add the Philippi to distinguish and why not name it after himself, Caesarea Philippi, after Herod Philip II. Significantly, Jesus came to this region with his disciples, as Matthew details. The text says that Jesus comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and this is the famous moment when he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? After some discussion, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell reference is especially interesting when you consider where we're at. Caesarea Philippi was known as a hub for evil. Detestable acts, including prostitution between man and animals, were committed here. And the cult at Caesarea Philippi thought that the cave next to the Temple to Pan, along with the water in the cave, created a gate to the underworld, a gate to hell. We can almost be certain that Jesus and his disciples were aware of this context. And it's so interesting that Jesus comes here to remind his disciples that there will be evil in the world, but nothing will be able to prevail against his salvation and his church. They're standing in the midst of what was known as a place of wickedness as Jesus says this. But he emphasizes that as evil as the world may be, his disciples have the strength to overcome and not be sucked into such detestable practices. And we have that same strength as children of God who have trusted in his salvation. Farther, Jesus reminds them as they stand near Caesarea Philippi, where the pagan worshipers believe the gate to hell exists, that not even the gates of hell can stop what Jesus has done and what he will do. It's a powerful reminder to the disciples to remain faithful to Jesus and his mission even in the midst of a perverse world. As modern readers, we skip right over the subtleties in the Bible. Hopefully, our time in Israel will change that. Well, we're out of time for now, so let's head back to the bus. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we head to Tel Hatzor and meet up with a special guest who has an incredible tour planned. I'll see you then.